Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. It's going to be found on page 16 in our few Bibles, or 31 in the large print. My apologies for the microphone not working right now. If my voice drops or you can't hear me, let me know. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14, a uh, rather famous story of Abraham and Isaac, his son, that God had promised to him for many years, who had finally been given in his old age, and then (laughs) things seemed to change. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We ask that, um, that you would make clear to us what we read today, that you would give us a passion for reading your word every day that we would come more and more to know who you are, that we would love you more, that we would live with you more, that we would desire you more, and that we would become more and more like you by your word and your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Turning to our New Testament lesson, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Paul writing to the church in Corinth, answering questions about the resurrection. And the whole of this chapter has to do with the resurrection of the dead and what that will be like. But we will pick up in verse 42 and read to the end. He says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but I really like languages, foreign languages, different languages, languages I don't speak or understand. When we were in Israel a couple weeks ago, um, it was fascinating to walk along, and there were people in Jerusalem especially who had come from all parts of the world. And so as you go to these various holy sites, there are people from all over the world who are right there, and just within a very small space, you can hear lots of different languages. And one of the things that I like about languages is that when you don't understand them, it sounds like gibberish. It just sounds meaningless. And people will be having whole conversations, and you're like, how in the world do they understand each other? (laughs) They're not even speaking English, right? And then if you start to learn a new language, and you start to understand that, wait, there is meaning there after all, and you start picking up a word or a phrase, and it starts becoming clearer, And then what once sounded like gibberish isn't anymore. Or if you've ever seen anybody uh, speaking in sign language, and it's just, you know, moving their hands around, thinking, how does anybody make sense of that? And then you start learning some of the signs. Oh, that's actually a conversation. That makes sense now. There is a... uh, There's a good part of the Bible, I think, and, in fact, the whole world that we look around in, Where Psalm 19 says, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, right? I think a lot of times, 
it just sounds like gibberish because we haven't learned the language. We haven't learned the language, and once we start to learn the language of all of creation, we see how it all does declare the glory of God. And sometimes we read the Bible, and we haven't learned the language yet. And so we read these stories of the Old Testament, and we go, okay, I think I get that. You know, David was a good guy, I should be like David. Joseph was a good guy, I should be like Joseph. Moses was a good guy, I should be like... But we haven't learned to read in the language of the Bible. We haven't learned what story it's really telling. And I think this becomes clear to us... Uh, Partly, when we look at what one of my seminary professors called the most frustrating verse in the Bible. The most frustrating verse in the Bible. Not a good, good way to begin. Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is already raised from the dead. And there are some disciples who are walking along the road. And... Jesus joins them, but they don't recognize him. And then they have a conversation with the resurrected Jesus without knowing that's who they're talking to. Here's how it goes. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. Their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? Here's the most frustrating verse in the Bible. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's it. That's the one verse. And my professor said this was the most frustrating verse because he said, don't you wish that we just sort of had the transcript of that whole conversation? Instead of just, and then Jesus told them about the whole of the Old Testament, how it all pointed to him. Don't you wish that we had that sermon, <laughs> that talk, together with the disciples, explaining how Jesus explained the whole of the Old Testament, how it all had to do with him, and what he would suffer before entering his glory? Yes, I do wish we had that <laughs> as, a, as a transcript. But we don't have that. And yet, that's verse right there helps us as we understand how to read the Old Testament. That we don't just read it as separate individual stories that have nothing to do with each other or with anything else. But they're all telling one big story. This helps us to learn the language. And as we learn this language of how all these stories go together, 
it's important to keep in mind that it's not that these are made-up stories that all go together to help tell something. These are real things that happened in history. But because we believe in a God who is above all of it, who is over all of history, that as these real events are happening in history, there is a larger story being told through it all. Which, then if we understand our place in history, we understand that our part is still a part of his story. And that even the lives that we are living now, in our very real lives, our day-to-day things that are happening, we can see how they are all part of his story. So what is the story that he's telling? Um, St. Augustine, by the way, said, Only in the New Covenant does the old unfold, and hidden in the New Testament, and hidden lies the New Testament in the old. In other words, the more we read the New Testament, the more we understand the Old Testament. And then the more that we read the Old Testament, the more we see that the New Testament's been there all along. But we just didn't see it before. We don't have a transcript of Jesus' conversation with his disciples, but we do have, throughout the New Testament, writers saying, pointing back to the Old Testament and saying, remember this? Let me show you how that points to Jesus. Remember this? Let me show you how that points to Jesus. Because what we find out is as we look through the Old Testament is it all has been pointing to Jesus from the very beginning. In two weeks, we are going to start looking at the book of James. The book of James is the only book in the New Testament that does not mention Jesus by name. Did you know that? A little Bible trivia for you doesn't mention the name of Jesus. And you say, well, why would we read a book that doesn't mention the name of Jesus? Don't we want to make sure that we're looking at Jesus and everything? Yes, we do. And we have just gone through all of Hebrews, showing how Jesus is above everything and greater than everything that has come before, greater than everything that will ever be. And then we looked at what Jesus said about himself in the Gospel of John, and how every statement he makes is an exclusive statement of his greatness and his oneness with God the Father above everything else. Why would we read a book like James if it doesn't even talk about Jesus? Well, because it talks about, first, talks about our place in the story and what it is that we are to be doing as Christians. But, before we can get there, we have to understand that even when the Bible doesn't mention Jesus specifically by name, it's all still a part of his story about who he is and what he's done for us, first and foremost. And one easy way to tell that for sure is by looking back at the Old Testament and seeing the story that God has been telling from the beginning, how it's all had to do with Jesus, even when it doesn't use his name. So the next two weeks, we're going to look at the whole of the Old Testament in super fast forward. And we'll start with the creation itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? We know that. But in the New Testament, it tells us. John says that uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through him, all things were made that have been made, and nothing has been made except through him. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. That Jesus was with God the Father, from the very beginning, even before the creation itself. And so as we read about the creation in the Old Testament, and we read where God says, let there be light, and there is light, 
and we hear that word of God, we don't read it the same way anymore. Now we read it and we go, ah, there's Jesus. There's the word of God, even before the creation itself. And then we move on. And we see Adam and Eve, God creating uh, the first people and placing them in the garden where he has perfect fellowship with his people. And he has a good relationship with his people. And he walks with them and he talks with them. And yet, things go wrong. When given a choice, would you like to continue to walk with me or would you like to go your own way? They choose their own way. They turn away from God. And the relationship between God and his people breaks down. The relationship between people and each other breaks down. The relationship between people and the creation breaks down. But as we just read from 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that, as and probably didn't read, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. We have all been born of Adam, that first, the firstborn of all creation. And yet, that's the old creation. But Jesus is the firstborn of a new creation. And for those of us who have been born naturally of Adam, descendants of him, we are all separated from God by sin as a result. But for all of us who are in Jesus, Firstborn of a new creation. We have life, not death, to look forward to. And so now as we read the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, it's not just a story of, oh, they got it wrong, I should you know, make a different decision than they do. But we see how Jesus has already made a different decision than they did. And that rather than following them, we follow him. And that even that story is about uh, is about Jesus. And the way that when they go out of the garden, we see at the end of Revelation, we see a garden city where Jesus is there and the people of God are once again, because of Jesus, together in perfect fellowship with each other and God and all of creation. It's all put right again. Not because Adam got it right. <laughs> Not because any of us get it right. But because Jesus got it right. Because of what he did for us. And so now we can read that, understanding this is the story that God is telling. It's all about Jesus. It always has been from the beginning. In fact, right at the point where Adam and Eve got it wrong, and God comes in and says, all right, here's going to be the punishment. Adam, here's what it's going to be like for you. Eve, here's what it's going to be like for you. And then to the serpent, here's what it's going to be like for you. But he also says, in the midst of all that, but I'm going to send the seed of woman. Someone born of woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That this problem that has come into this perfect creation will not always remain. This will be dealt with and will be dealt with finally. The promise began right there at the start of the problem. From the very beginning, the story has been about Jesus. We move on and we see uh, Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel. You guys are saying... If we're going through the Old Testament, fast forward. This is <laughs> We're only to Abel at this point. Cain and Abel, the children of Adam and Eve. And what happens? They offer their sacrifices. Cain gets angry. 
And he takes Abel out and he kills him. He kills him. The first murder, the first death, really. And it's a murder. And it's the one who died not because he had it coming. Not because he had done something wrong or he deserved to die. He was killed in innocence because there was somebody who was doing wrong who didn't like that they were being shown up by somebody else. Somebody else's life was pleasing to God and theirs wasn't, so they killed him. Does this remind you of anyone? As we look to Jesus and someone who was doing what was right, whose life was pleasing to God, and there were people who didn't like that they were being exposed. And they decided that the way to fix the problem was to kill the one who was pleasing to God. And so Jesus dies. But as we saw in the book of Hebrews, this is brought out again. It says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And you remember in, uh, in Genesis, that it says that when God comes to Cain, he says, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground to me. And what was the blood crying out? It was saying, Cain is guilty. He's killed his brother. The blood of Jesus, the one who was even more righteous than Abel, was killed. And what does his blood say? It doesn't say these people are guilty because they have killed the Messiah. But rather it says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And so rather than a, a blood that speaks a word of condemnation, it's the blood that speaks the word of forgiveness. Because Jesus took the death for us. So now as we read of Cain and Abel, we can read it through the eyes of the New Testament and see that even that points us to Jesus. Skipping forward a few more generations, we get to Noah. To Noah and the one who, uh, in the midst of a sinful world, survives the judgment on sin. He survives the judgment because God calls to him and says, build a boat. And he builds a boat. And through that boat, he and his family are saved. Through the in the midst of the judgment on all the sin of creation. Now, it's tempting with Noah to look to the story and say either, you know, one, it's a cute story for kids, with all the fluffy animals and all that, or two, oh, Noah was a good guy, we should be like Noah. But that is really not the story. The story is that God comes to Noah, that God calls to him. He chooses him among, uh, from everybody else. And it's the ark, not Noah, the ark that has saved those people. And if you look at 1 Peter and 2 Peter both, he points out that it is the ark that points us to Jesus, that those who are in the ark are saved. And if you're outside the ark, it doesn't matter how well you can dog paddle. It doesn't matter if you're the best swimmer in the world. Michael Phelps is not going to survive the flood. But anybody who's in the ark, it doesn't matter how bad a swimmer they are. If you're in the ark, it doesn't matter. You're safe. And so when we look to the ark and we see that, that those who are in there are safe from the judgment because they trust in God and what he has provided even through the work of Noah. It says, now look at this. Those who trust in Jesus, it doesn't matter how good your deeds are. It doesn't matter how bad your deeds are. If you trust in Jesus, you're safe from the judgment that's coming. 
because he's already taken the judgment on himself. And those who are in Christ have life. And those who are outside of Christ, no matter how good they're trying to be, are outside. And so when we read the story of Noah, we see now how it points to Jesus. Moving on a few more generations to Abraham. The way that God called to him, kind of out of the blue. I want you to leave everything. I want you to leave your father. I want you to leave your land. I want you to leave everything that's familiar to you. And I want you to go to the place where I want to show you. And you notice he doesn't say, I want you to go, you know, however many miles west, and then I want you to take a left. And then he says, go to the place I'm going to show you. How do you go to the place he's going to show you? You follow him. So in effect, God is saying to Abraham, come follow me. Sound familiar? <laughs> this is what Jesus said to his disciples. Come, follow me. And it says, and they left their father in the boat, and they went and they followed him. They didn't know where they were going. But they knew who they were following. Abraham didn't know where he was going, but he knew who he was following. And if you read through the New Testament, Abraham's name shows up all over the place. Because there are all kinds of ways in which uh, God is telling his story through the person of Abraham through his life and the ways that God works with him. But we're going to point out one in particular. The way in which the story we read earlier of Abraham and his son Isaac. God has told Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. In fact, he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And it's through you that the whole world is going to be blessed. And of course we see in the opening verses of Matthew that it's through the family of Abraham that Jesus comes into the world. That it's through Abraham that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. But when, after waiting many years, God finally sends the son, Isaac, then we have that strange story where God says, now I want you to bring Isaac, take Isaac, take him up onto this mountain, place I will show you. I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to give him up. Which would have been understandable back then. There were plenty of pagan people who were offering their children to their gods in sacrifice. Saying to that God, I you know, will put everything I'll put you before everything else, even my own children. And if I give you my child, which is the thing that I love most in this world, surely you will bless me somehow. And so we see Isaac, the son, carrying the wood on his back as he heads to the place where he will be sacrificed. But then he's not. And this is where this is where the story takes an unexpected turn because back then you would expect that then Abraham would get up to the mountain and he would sacrifice Isaac and then he would go back home and wonder how in the world God was going to fulfill his promise to bless all people through him and through Isaac. But where the story turns is when he raises the knife. The angel stops him. No. 
In 2008, in the National Day of Prayer address, uh, Ravi Zacharias tells of an interaction he had with one of the leaders of Hamas uh, when he was meeting with him in the Middle East. And he says, uh, so that that leader had given them a great meal, had told us of 18 years he'd served in prison, some of his children had been lost in suicide bombings, this and that. Then I had a question. I said, Sheik, I may never see you again, and forgive me if I'm asking you the wrong question. Please tell me, what do you think of suicide bombing and sending your children out like that? I didn't like his answer. I couldn't say much. The room was full of smoke. After he finished his answer, I said, Sheik, you and I may never see each other again. So I want you to hear me. A little distance from here is a mountain upon which Abraham went 5,000 years ago to offer his son. You may say the son was one. I may say it's another. Let's not argue about that. He took his son up there. And as the axe was about to fall, God said, stop. I said, do you know what what God said after that? He shook his head. I said, God said, I myself will provide. He nodded his head. I said, very close to where you and I are sitting, Sheik, is a hill. 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise and brought his own son, and the axe did not stop this time. He sacrificed his own son. I said, Sheik, I want you to hear this. Until you and I receive the son God has provided, we'll be offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for many of the wrong reasons. When we read the story of Isaac going up on the mountain with Abraham, it is not just a story of a man who's showing great faith that God is somehow going to bring about his promises and walking in faith and obedience. That's definitely a part of it. But we stop short if we don't see how this points forward, how this all points to Jesus, where God does not stop before the sacrifice happens, but that he sacrifices his son for us rather than requiring us to sacrifice our children for him. This is a huge reversal. This is the love that God has for us, that he gives his son for us, that he would die in our place. Now, we haven't covered a whole lot of the Old Testament. I told you we were going to do the whole thing, uh, the whole Old Testament in two weeks. We've made it through... the first 22 chapters of the whole Old Testament. Uh, <laughs> we'll cover the rest even faster next week. <laughs> Randy Frazee talks about how there's the, in the story, there's the lower story and the upper story. Here's what I want us to see this morning. That the events that are happening in the lower story, in other words, what's happening in our here and now, the experiences we have on a daily basis, that those are real experiences, and that they matter. We see this constantly through the whole of the Bible, that you have this, uh, this man that God says, I want you to do this thing, and he either does or doesn't do it, and it matters. <laughs> and it all matters, not just because it matters in his own life, but because there's a greater story that God is telling. And we see this played out as we go through the whole of the Bible. That God is telling his story of his love for us, the way he comes for us, and what he is doing in our lives, and what he's done already in Jesus.
And so, as we experience our lower story, the things that are happening in our lives day to day, I want us to remember that it's all telling an upper story. That it's all going together to tell about what God is doing in the world. And so, here's the thing. As we go and look at the Old Testament, we learn, we start to learn this language of seeing Jesus all over the place. Because even though when we're very little and we start learning about, uh, about what everything's about, we start thinking it's all about us, right? Everybody's there to meet my needs. And then we get older and we f- figure out that's not it. And we start trying to figure out what it is about. But when we start understanding this language that says it's all about Jesus, it's all about what, who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus, what he's doing for the whole world, how he's putting everything right again in Jesus, and we start to learn that language, then when we look to the heavens that declare the glory of God, when we look to the scriptures as we read about things, as we look to our friends and our neighbors, all these events, we read the news, as we watch it on TV, this is no longer gibberish. But we start to pick out a word here or there. And we start to see the way in which God is telling his story even now. And that it all has to do with Jesus. The more we can learn this, and the better we can understand this language, the better we can understand the book of James as we go through that, even though it doesn't use the name of Jesus, we'll start to see him everywhere. The more we'll understand that uh, when we watch the news, it has to do with Jesus. The more when we are <laughs> sitting down for a meal with our families, when we are having conversations uh, with business partners or competitors, way we see that everything has to do with what God has done for us in Jesus and what he's continuing to do as we are the children of the new creation and the kingdom of God that will one day be brought to fulfillment. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.